as we study your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Josiah, he comes on the scene about 640 B.C., and he reigns for 31 years. And as we discussed last week, as we began to look at his reign, he is reigning um, as the last good king of Judah. And as he is only eight years old, he comes to the throne. We know that it had been a very difficult time for Judah, as we saw in the previous chapters, uh, in chapters 33 and 34, uh, particularly in chapter 33, as we saw that his grandfather, Manasseh, was the longest reigning king in Judah. And Manasseh, as you recall, was the most evil king of Judah. He was one that plunged the nation deep into witchcraft and sorcery. He consulted mediums. Uh, he had built these, um, uh, these altars uh, to, and wooden images to all kinds of false gods and to Baal worship. Uh, there was all these false altars all over Jerusalem and in the temple as well. They were even passing their own children on the arms of Moloch there in the Gehenna Valley. So it was dark, dark times indeed. And I think that when we covered chapter 33 that I told you that they've done excavations there in Jerusalem, and you can see the pictures that the archaeologists have, that piles of idols that they found uh, as they were excavating there in Jerusalem that date back to the time of Manasseh. So it was a dark time, the Lord was forsaken, the Lord was forgotten, and it's interesting, even though in chapter 33 it tells of an amazing story that it was Manasseh that would be taken away uh, captive as he was taken away uh, there in um, bronze fetters and, and uh, with hooks, and he would be taken away to Babylon. But miraculously, the Lord would restore him as he repented, and he would come back, and he would begin to worship the Lord. But the nation was so entrenched thoroughly with false worship that it would carry on. When Manasseh dies, his son comes on the scene, Ammon. He rules for a short time, but again, the nation is practicing all the kinds of false worship. And then Josiah comes, and Josiah is only eight years old when he comes to the throne. And you recall when he was 16 years old, he began to uh, do a, a restoring of true worship. You see, Josiah was one that did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He didn't walk uh, to the left or to the uh, right-hand side. He stayed focused on the Lord. He was one that he believed in the Lord, and he was one that was faithful to the Lord. And Josiah, even at a young age, he has the temple that is being cleansed, all the rubble and the trash and and all the things that happened because of his grandfather Manasseh and his father um, that were idol worshipers. Um, He was one that we're going to restore the temple, we're going to repair it, refurbish it, and we're going to clean it up. Well, you recall last week that as we were in chapter 34, that it was the high priest that he found a a copy of the law. And it was Helkiah the priest that would bring that to the king, and they read it to the king. Matter of fact, it was Saphon, the, the scribe, that read it to King Josiah. You see, that's how far gone they had been away from the Lord. They didn't even have a copy of the book of the law. And somewhere, I just imagine, in a corner under a bunch of trash, they find this, this book or these scrolls of the book of the law, and they blow the dust off of it, and they begin to read it. They begin to look at it. They're saying, hey, this is the book of the law, the law of Moses. 
And, and let's take it to the king and let's read it to him. And that's what Saphan does. He begins to read it to King Josiah. And it says in the scriptures that it cut him to the heart, that it just pierced his heart. And we know that the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So Josiah, as he's hearing the word of God, he, he pierces his heart and, and he tore his clothes and he realized that the problems that they had gone through, much difficulties and hardship and, and being defeated by the enemies, going through locust infestations and all these other things that had taken place there in Judah, it was because they had forsaken the covenant that God had made with his people there at Mount Sinai. So it is Josiah that is more determined that he's going to restore true worship, make a covenant with the Lord. And you see, we learn some very important lessons in that. And one is, is that if we forsake the Lord, the word of the Lord being worked out in our lives, because you see godly wisdom and understanding, knowing the word of God, it's more than just having it in your head, but it's having it in your heart and then having it worked out in your life. That's very important. You see, I know people that they're smart in the scriptures, but they don't have it being worked out in their lives. And if we're not having it worked out in our lives, then we can go through difficulties in our lives. We can go through unnecessary, you know, discouragement and pain and confusion. And if you don't have the word of God that you're applying in your life and following after, you're going to be deceived. And unnecessary hurt is going to come and sadness to you. That's why it's important that we know the word of God and have the word of God worked out in our lives. So it is Josiah that's saying, so wonder that we're going through all these difficulties. And I have known those that perhaps grew up in the church or were going to church at some time. They're Christians. But somehow they got away from the word of the Lord. And they got cheated because they began to follow after other things. And they began to follow after the world's philosophy and the world's ways. And sadness and confusion did come into their lives. And discouragement and deception. You see, Jesus came and said, I came to give you life and life abundantly. He came and he promised us eternal life for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But you see, the Lord also desires for us to live life the way it was meant to be lived. Life abundantly, a life of wisdom and strength and, and, and a life that, where we have the peace of God that is in our hearts. And it comes by as we follow after his ways which are true and which are good. So Josiah realizes something very important. So he makes a covenant with the Lord, with the people. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to follow after him. And he gets rid of the altars and begins to clean up Jerusalem and Judah of all false worship. But also what I want to reiterate to us as we talked about is that if you want to have revival that happens perhaps in your life, maybe you hear and you're thinking, man, I've been dry. Things spiritually haven't been going well for me over the last week or month or year. Maybe it's been longer than that. Or maybe you know somebody that you know that they're dry spiritually and there needs to be revival in their life. Revival will come when there's a rediscovery of the Word of God. The Word of God that will come into them and begin to feed them and strengthen them and to grow them. It's the way to growth. It's the way to be fed. It's the way to be strong is that you and I, that we continue 
to be in the Word of God. So maybe there needs to be a rediscovering of the Word of God in your life or perhaps in somebody's life that you know, and you can minister that Word to them. So here's Josiah. He's desiring to, to, to bring the nation back to the Lord. And in chapter 35, as we begin at verse 1, we're going to see that he's going to keep the Passover. Let's read it now. As Josiah kept the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. We know that they were to do that according to what? The book of Exodus chapter 12. And he set the priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. And then he said to the Levites who taught all Israel who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon the son of David, king of Israel, built. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. And verse 4, prepare yourselves according to your fathers' houses, according to your divisions, following the written instruction of David, king of Israel, and the written instruction of Solomon, his son. And stand in the holy place according to the divisions of the fathers' houses of your brethren, the lay people, and according to the division of the people's house of the Levites. So slaughter the Passover offerings, consecrate yourselves, and prepare them for your brethren, that they may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So Josiah, as he's restoring true worship once again here to the temple and to the house of Judah, he desires to keep the Passover, just as we saw with Hezekiah. And as they prepared for Passover, there was a lot of work that needed to be done to make Passover happen. And I want us to take note that in verse 2, that he set the priests in their duties and then encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. In other words, what he did first is he set them in their duties. He set them in their duties. You know, the Lord desires to set you and me in the duties that he has for us. He, he wants to do a work in you and, and then through you. He has something for you to do. And so what we are to do as Christians is be sensitive to the leading of the Lord, to go to the Lord and, and to be set where God would want us to be and to be serving where he would have us to serve. And perhaps, you know, sometimes we don't always understand what God is doing. Yes, there's that time where he's preparing us and he's growing us. And sometimes people will say, I'm not sure what the Lord wants me to do. And I just encourage them, keep praying, keep seeking the Lord. He's preparing you. Just as we see in the book of Leviticus, you see, as the priests were being trained, they would be prepared and then they would be presented. Chapter 8, the priests being prepared as they were anointed with, with oil, they would be washed with water. And, and they would be in the tabernacle. Those things that God was doing through them, we need to be anointed by the Lord. We need to be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and cleansed and as we come to him and then washed with the water of the word. And we need to be in the house of the Lord, growing in the word of God. The Lord will do a preparatory work in us. And then in chapter 9, the priests were presented for ministry. So perhaps you're in a season like that. But the Lord desires to use every single one of us. And sometimes, He'll have us in places that perhaps the workplace that you're in or wherever it might be for you, that you're thinking, well, what I might do or what you're calling me to do seems so insignificant and it really isn't important. Listen, whatever God has for you to do is not insignificant, mom, who are raising your children in the ways of the Lord. Or dad, that you're at the workplace and you're ministering to that coworker, or whatever it is that the Lord has you to do in ministering. 
and the gifts that he gives to you and the opportunities that he shows to you, that he wants to use you, and he wants to set you in that place for the duties that he has for you. And then second of all, notice that he would encourage them. All of us need to be encouraged, don't we? One of the things that we're going to talk about on Sunday morning in 1 Thessalonians is Paul is going to talk to the church at Thessalonica. He, he really was fond of them, had a great love for them, and they were very special to him. And he says to them that make sure that you esteem the leaders, that you show respect for them. And apparently as you put 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians together, there are those who are unruly and disrespectful to the leaders and to the brethren. And he says that you esteem the leaders for the labor that they do for the Lord. And as we are serving the Lord, it's important that yes, the Lord gets the glory, that he is exalted but also that we do encourage one another in our service for God because that's what's going to keep you in longevity in serving the Lord. You see, what happens is we can get discouraged in serving the Lord, can't we? Whether it is teaching Sunday school or ministering to youth, whether it's you know leading a, a small group or home fellowship, uh, doing practical things. And what helps us is when a brother and sister comes along and begins to build you up and encourage you. Because there are those times you wonder, Lord, am I doing any good in ministering to these children or working in the nursery? Lord, is it really important what I do and the practical things that I'm doing in ministry? Lord, am I really making a difference as I minister to kids or as I minister to youth? Or, Lord, is it really important what I'm sharing with this, this group of people that you've given to me? And to be able to be encouraged and built up is so very important for a brother and sister to come along and say, hey, you're a blessing. Hey, I appreciate the labor that you do for the Lord. And, and just kind of encouraging us and provoking us, as the scripture says, for good works. So let's not forget to do that with one another and bless one another. And that's what Josiah was doing here. But also, I want to make one note, too, as it's interesting in verse 3, he talks about putting the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son David, king of Israel, had built. He's talking about what? The ark of the covenant. And you know that the ark of the covenant was that furnishing that was in the most holy place, only furnishing that box that was about three feet long and two feet wide and two feet high. It was made of a wood overlaid with gold, and it had a lid on it called the mercy seat made of uh, pure gold. It was the most important furnishing when it was built in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. You recall that Moses was told to build the Ark of the Covenant. In the Holy of Holies, the high priest would go into that room once a year to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the nation. And as that mercy seat had two cherubim made of gold, the Lord said, I'll dwell between the cherubim. It represented the throne uh, seat of God. So here is the Ark of the Covenant that was in the tabernacle. It would be put into, as you recall, Solomon's temple when he built the temple. The priest carried it into the Holy of holies there so it is mentioned there but then we don't see it mentioned until now chapter 35 so apparently the ark of the covenant was taken out of the temple solomon's temple when did that happen well we don't know the scripture doesn't say and why did it happen 
The best guess that Bible scholars and commentators have is that during the reign of perhaps Ahaz, do you recall that Ahaz, that he was a terrible king. He was reigning when Isaiah uh, first came on the scene, and Ahaz was one that plunged the nation deep into to idol worship. He was much like Manasseh. So Ahaz, you recall, he went up to Damascus to see the king of Assyria. He made an alignment with him. And you recall that in 2 Kings chapter 16, it tells us that Ahaz sees this idol that the king of Assyria is, is worshiping and, and, and burning incense to. And Ahaz said, I like that. I want a copy of it and have it in the temple in Jerusalem. So it is thought that perhaps during that time that some of the priests took the Ark of the Covenant out of the temple as Ahaz had his idol that was there as he would desecrate the temple at that time and having all these you know things he, he took some of the furnishings and cut up some of the you know the the lavers that were outside of the outer court as we read about he just really trashed out the temple and perhaps it was taken out during that time uh, or perhaps there are some and there are those who will take trips to to Ethiopia on the premise of what happened was during the days of Manasseh, the Ark of the Covenant was taken out. And the Ark of the Covenant was taken by some priests that would then go to an island on the Nile River there in Egypt, and they found some evidence that some Jews actually did that. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant went. And then it ended up eventually over in Ethiopia, and it's in a house, and it's guarded by you know this one guy that guards it, and nobody's been able to see it. So... We don't know. It's the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. But the premise is it was taken out during the days of Manasseh. It would go to Egypt, and then it would go to Ethiopia. The problem with that is the Word of God tells us otherwise. Because Second Chronicles chapter 35, here is the grandson of, of Manasseh that is saying, let's put the Ark of the Covenant back into the Holy of Holies. So it had to be in Jerusalem still. It didn't leave Judah. So the Ark of the Covenant is placed back into it. Now, we know that next week we're going to talk about there's going to be three waves of captivity in 605 B.C., in 587 B.C., and then in 586 B.C. And what's going to happen in 586 B.C., the third time that Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem, is he destroys Solomon's temple. We do know that the first time and the second time that Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem, he takes some of the vessels and some of the furnishings in the temple, Solomon's temple, back to Babylon. And there's a list of that in the book of Daniel, and also we will see a list of that in the book of Ezra. And the Ark of the Covenant is not listed. So what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? We don't know. Possibility, it went to Babylon. Some have suggested that Jeremiah came along and some of the priests, and right before the Babylonians came in, that they hid it under the Temple Mount, that it's in a tunnel there. There's even been a rumor over the last 20 years that uh, a group of, of Jews have found where the Ark of the Covenant is and they'll bring it out at the right time. We don't know if that's true or not. Others have suspected that the Ark of the Covenant is perhaps in a cave hidden somewhere in the hills of Judea. So we don't know what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. It's, it's a great mystery. Some have suggested that perhaps that it would end up coming uh, out of the second temple because 
you recall that the Solomon's temple is destroyed, 70 years of captivity. We're going to see in a couple weeks that it's going to be Zerubbabel that's going to come back in 536 B.C., and he's going to begin to build the second temple. And it gives a list of some of the furnishings that comes back from Babylon back to Jerusalem, and we know that the Ark of the Covenant isn't listed. It doesn't say anything about the Ark of the Covenant being put in the second temple. So was it in the second temple? Again, it's a great mystery. Some have suggested, though, that it was. And then Titus, when he destroyed the second temple, that he took it off to Rome in 70 AD. So the Ark of the Covenant is the last time that it's mentioned here in the scriptures. We don't know where it is. We don't know what happened to it. And it's interesting that Jeremiah, and um, I didn't write down the verse, but somewhere in Jeremiah it says that there's going to be a time when the Ark of the Covenant is going to be remembered no more. So here's the question for you who like to kind of read up on these things, that when the tribulation temple comes, is the Ark of the Covenant going to be in the tribulation temple? Now if you go to Jerusalem, you go to the Temple Institute where they're making the furnishings for the temple that is going to be rebuilt, that there is a picture of what looks like the Ark of the Covenant that they may have ready. Of course, it's a replica of the original or the research that they've done on one. I personally don't think that the Ark of the Covenant is going to be in the Holy of Holies. If it is, it's going to be for a short time. Why? Well, we'll talk about that when we get to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, all right? So you have to come back for that part. So the Ark of the Covenant, we don't know what happened to it. And here the Passover is going to be celebrated. In verse 7, then Josiah gave the lay people lambs and young goats from the flock, all for Passover offerings for all who were present, to the number of 30,000 as well as 3,000 cattle. These were from the king's possessions. And his leaders gave willingly to the people, to the priests and to the Levites and Hilkiah and Zechariah and J.I.L. and rulers of the house of God gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 from the flock and 300 cattle. And we read in verse 9, Conaniah, his brothers, and his brothers are listed there, and chief of the Levites gave to the Levites for Passover offerings 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. So we see here that Josiah provides... Uh, thousands of his own sheep and and many cattle for the sacrifice and then in verse 8 as we read then the leaders uh, followed his example you see as leaders whether you're a leader in your home or leader is in your business or leader in your workplace a leader is to be an example in our service but also in our giving we're to be an example in our service, but also we're to be an example in our giving. Leaders are not just to be taking. And unfortunately, perhaps you've seen in ministry where that there was abuses. Leaders took advantage of the people and were only taking from the people. But we are to be examples in our labor for the Lord and then in our giving to the Lord as well. And you see, we are to be examples of that, moms and dads, to our children. And we're to be examples to other brothers and sisters as well. And you see, it's very important. And we know that Paul, he would uh, have that same principle and truth that is given in the scriptures as he would talk to Timothy about that. He said, Timothy, take, make sure that you take heed to yourself 
and then be an example to the flock, be an example, you know, in, uh, to the other believers. Timothy, you're pastoring this church at Ephesus, and you are to make sure that you're taking care of yourself spiritually, and then you're to be an example. And you see, the way for us to be an example in our service for the Lord and in our giving is to make sure that you and I are taking care of ourselves spiritually, that we're spending time with the Lord. Sue and I were talking about this last night, but in the book of Exodus, chapter 32, verse 34, that the Lord tells Moses, Moses, now lead the people to the place that I have spoken to you. So mom and dads, and any of us that lead in any way, how can we lead those that God has given to us to minister to if we haven't been hearing from the Lord? You see, Moses was told that after he had spent time up on the mountain and he had heard from God and received the law of God. He had been in the presence of the Lord all those days up there. And now, Moses, you go and lead the people to the place that I have spoken to you. And we will not be able to lead others if we're not hearing from the Lord, if he's not speaking to us, if we haven't been in the presence of the Lord, if we're not taking care of ourselves spiritually, and we won't be able to be an example to others if we don't have that close, intimate fellowship and relationship with the Lord and hearing from him and learning of him and being sensitive to hear his voice. So here they are an example, Josiah is, and the others followed him. It's a wonderful pattern that we see here. In verse 10, so the service was prepared, and the priests stood in their places, and the Levites in their divisions, according to the king's command. And they slaughtered the Passover offerings, and the priests sprinkled the blood with their hands, while the Levites skinned the animals. And then they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the divisions of the father's houses of the lay people, and to offer the Lord as it is written in the book of Moses. And so they did with the cattle. And also they roasted the Passover offerings with fire according to the ordinance, but the other holy offerings they boiled in pots and cauldrons and in pans and divided them quickly among all the lay people. And then afterwards, verse 14 tells us, they prepared portions for themselves and for the priests because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were busy in offering burnt offerings and fat until night. Therefore, the Levites uh, prepared portions for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron. And the singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their places according to the command of David. Asaph and Heman, remember that they were ministering during the days of David. They were brothers. They've written some of the psalms that you have in your Bible. A, a great worship uh, team, Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun and the king seer and also the gatekeepers were at each gate and they did not have to leave their position um, because their brethren, the Levites, prepared portions for them. You see here the sacrifice of the animals and the sacrificial meal. The sons of Asaph who were doing the worship, the Levites served them the meal. They really had servants' hearts, these Levites. And one of the things that I think has really stood out with me here, this time going through First and Second Chronicles, is that it's really stood out with me, the Levites, as you recall that when David was preparing, drawing up the plans, making plans for Solomon to build the temple, and you recall in First Chronicles, there's uh, a lot in there telling us how David was told by the Lord how to, to divide up the Levites and the priests. And, you know, it was different than the tabernacle ministry. Out in Numbers chapter 4, out in the wilderness, 
that there was the Gershonites and the Maronites and the Kohathites, and they each had responsibilities. But with the temple being built, there's a lot more Levites, a lot more priests over those years, hundreds of years that they've been a nation. And so David is dividing them into divisions and into gatekeepers. They had their responsibilities and the musicians and those who helped the priests and skin the animals and those, as First Chronicles says, did all manner of service. And I like that. The Levites really had servants' hearts. And the Levites remind me a lot of the New Testament definition of a deacon. You see, in Acts chapter 6, you recall the first deacons that are ordained. We saw that in a recent study of the book of Acts, that they were serving tables. The deacons were the ones that did the practical side of ministry. They're the ones that rolled up their sleeve and were serving the widows. And, of course, we know that the office of deacon is, is uh, there given to us in First uh, Timothy chapter 3, and the deacons were the ones that did the practical uh, service of the Lord, serving the tables and a very important ministry. So you have the office of an overseer or uh, an elder, and then you have the office of a deacon. But the word deacon, the Greek word deaconess, simply means a servant. So the Levites did all manner of service. Uh, the deacons, those who are servants, and, and really you, can, you have the office of deacon, but I believe that the Lord's called all of us to be servants. And I'll tell you this. When it was Peter and the apostles that came and said, listen, we're going to ordain these guys as deacons that they can serve the widows so that we can be given over to the study of God's word and to prayer. It wasn't that they weren't willing to do it, but they were prioritizing as the church was growing at that time that what we need to be given to is studying the word of God and we need to be in prayer. And I'm not claiming to be an apostle. Please don't misunderstand me. But being a pastor, teacher, and pastoring this church, my priority is to be teaching the word of God. That's what God has called me to do to be teaching on Wednesdays and Sundays and at other times that I'm able to teach the Word of God, to be able to prepare for that. And I could not do my ministry if it wasn't for you guys who roll up your sleeves, who do practical ministry, who get the work done. You're such a blessing to me and just making sure that things are, are being taken care of that things are, are being cleaned and fixed and things are in proper order. And it's such a blessing to me to be able to be free, to be able to do what God has called me to do because of servants that are here willing to do the work of the ministry in all manner of service. So I want to encourage you that your ministry is very important and very much of a blessing. So here is these guys as we see that um, they are... Uh, sacrificing the animals, and they're serving one another the sacrificial meal to those who were serving there at that time. In verse 16, So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover, to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. And the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at the time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. And there had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet, and none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and all the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And in the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. 
So this Passover was bigger than Hezekiah's Passover. And what is interesting is that we're told here that no Passover was like this ever since the days of Samuel the prophet. That is before David or Solomon. Now, it does not mean necessarily that David never observed the Passover or Solomon during his reign. But it is interesting that it's not mentioned, is it, in First and Second Samuel or in First Kings, that they ever celebrated Passover. There was no Passover like this since before the kings came on the scene. And I find that to be very interesting, especially when it comes to David, who had a heart for the Lord and who desired really to worship the Lord. Did he observe Passover? I don't know. Was it Solomon? We know that Passover was something that they were to observe every year. It was a perpetual covenant that he made with his people. So here is Josiah with this Passover. There was a huge Passover. And um, the biggest one, you know, since the uh, days of of, uh, Samuel the prophet. And then as we read in verse 20, And all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, uh, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Charchemes by the Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. But he sent messengers to him, saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste, refrain from meddling with God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. And nevertheless, verse 22, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him, and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. So what's going on? It's the end of the reign of Josiah. It's 609 B.C. The Assyrians are on the decline. Remember during the days of Hezekiah that the Assyrians were flexing their muscle. They were taking over the, the, the whole area of the Middle East, and they had taken Syria and defeated them and, and defeated the, and taken off into captivity the ten northern tribes. They're making their way to Judah. They've taken many of the cities off you know, into captivity and, and captive there of Judah. And all that was really left was Jerusalem, and they surrounded Jerusalem with 185,000 soldiers, at least that many. And they were hurling threats at Hezekiah, we're going to destroy you. And an angel came and destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And then the king of Assyria went back and they killed him. Assyria has been on the decline since then. And then Babylon has been on the increase in power. Now Babylon is the world power. So here is the Assyrians, 609 B.C. The city of Nineveh had been taken over by the Babylonians. And the Assyrians were driven out and they regathered at a place called Sharshames. And it was in the upper Euphrates. So the Egyptians, what they are doing at this time is they're going to go join an ally with their old enemy, the Assyrians. Hey, let's join together the Egyptians and the Assyrians and maybe we can stop the Babylonians from rising the world power. So the Egyptians are passing through on their way to the upper Euphrates, which is in modern-day Iraq today. They're going to pass through Israel and through a major trade route, which would be through the valley of Megiddo, the valley of Jezreel. 
And as they go through there, there is Josiah. Now the Valley of Megiddo is a place that, of course, we know that the, the nations of the world are going to gather in that last world war right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So the last battle that will take place in the Valley of Megiddo, but at this time in 609 B.C., what we see here is that Josiah, he decides that he's going to try to stop the king of Egypt from taking his guys up there to do this battle. So for some reason, he felt like he needed to do this. So here is Josiah that's doing it. The king, he warns, you know, uh, Josiah, listen, this isn't your battle. Um, don't meddle to your hurt. And this is coming from the Lord, verse 22, that he did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So what happens here is that we see that he ends up going and he's determined to fight this battle, Josiah, against the king of Egypt. Be careful not to fight that battle that isn't yours to fight. The Lord, actually speaking through this king, Necho, by the word of his mouth coming from God, don't come and fight this. This isn't your battle. But Josiah ignored it. And he meddled to his own hurt. We need to be very wise and discerning in our journey in life when you wanted to meddle with something. Sometimes we can get involved, that is, in battles that aren't ours to fight. And always remember that it's the Lord's battle, oftentimes. I know that I try to battle something that the Lord's saying, this is my battle, you want to go ahead, Jeff, go ahead. So you're going to meddle to your own hurt. But be wise, because sometimes we want to get involved in things that we got no busy business getting involved in. And, and that can mean a, many different things. Getting involved in, in quarrels that... You know, that we don't need to be sticking our nose into or whatever it might be. Just be wise and discerning. Josiah here is, he is going to fight this battle here that God hadn't called him to fight. So when it comes to get involved with something or battle or whatever it is, make sure that you're being led by the Lord. And what happens is, well, let's read what happens. Verse 23, And the archer shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. And his servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had. And they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his father. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. And Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah. And to this day all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel. And indeed they are written in the laments. And now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness according to what was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds from the first to the last. Indeed, are they written in the book of the kings of Israel and of Judah. So Josiah dies in battle because he disguised himself. He went to battle. I believe he didn't seek the Lord at this time. And it cost him his life. Jeremiah is on the scene in his ministry. And he weeps because now they're headed for captivity they're headed for captivity, which we're going to see next week. The last of the good kings. And what is interesting that we'll talk about when we pick it up next week is why is it this revival that goes on. Josiah, he brings reforms to the land. He restores true worship. He celebrates the Passover. And they're going to fall right back into idol worship. 
as he now is died because of that battle. Why? Well, we'll talk about that next week. Because I think it's very important for us to consider it. Why was it, as we've gone through Second Chronicles, that it seemed like there's a good king, Hezekiah, and then Hezekiah who brought such goodness to the land, and the word of the Lord went throughout the land, and then all of a sudden after the death of Hezekiah who comes on the scene, Manasseh. And they plunge deep, deep into idol worship. Why was it because of that? Uh, i got to tell you now. <laughs> because you see, reforms, revival's got to be more than external. It has to be internal. And I believe a pattern what we saw is internally they had a lot of false worship still that was there and the desire to go back to those things and the desire to follow that which was wrong and get involved in sin. Listen, it needs to be a heart. That's where true revival is going to take place. Oh, Josiah brought reforms, but was it true revival? And I'm not saying that revival didn't come to some people. Certainly it did, but as a nation as a whole, Maybe they were just probably going through the motions and following along. And we'll celebrate the Passover. We'll be religious. We'll, we'll go to church. But where is your heart? And that's where true revival is going to start. It's when your heart is humble before the Lord and repentant towards the Lord and desiring to draw close to the Lord. You can go through all the motions the external things and, you know, be religious to people. No, oh, you're a religious guy. And. And, you know, you go to church or you belong to a church or you give to the church or whatever it might be, but where's your heart? Really, that's what the Lord sees. And that's where there's going to be revival that truly will come to your life. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. And, and Lord, we thank you for uh, just the truths that come out of these chapters. We see a nation that was so tremendously blessed, but yet they're going to go off into captivity because of their disobedience. A nation that had a chance to really turn to you and give their hearts to you, but they didn't. And Lord, as we close tonight, Lord, I just pray, just as Paul says, that, and as the scriptures declares, we're to present our hearts, examine our hearts. Lord, where really are we? Is there a worldliness that's in our hearts? Oh, we can play the games, religious games. We can speak scripture. We can do whatever. But Lord, really our hearts, may we just humble ourselves right now. We, we just got a few minutes. And give our hearts to you, Lord. And as David prayed to search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, I want to pray if there's anybody that happens to be here by chance that as Paul said, examine to see if you're in the faith. If there's anybody that's here that are in the coffee shop, maybe you're here, you've never really truly surrendered your life to Jesus. And maybe you thought coming to church, you know, you'd be okay. And, or maybe if you heard a Bible study, you'd be fine. But have you really repented, just turned direction? And realize your need for Jesus, the Savior of the world. He's the only one that can save you. 
and confess that, Lord, I have fallen short of the glory of God. I am a sinner. And I need you. And I ask for your forgiveness because I believe that you're the Son of God who died for me. And you can pray that right where you're sitting. He hears you. He knows your heart. If you're not right with God, get right with God right now. Before you leave this place tonight, 